The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Powell. This is going to be news for friends of the podcast, but Business is Boring has a special interest in the way that people have managed to keep making things happen in business while all things expected and normal fall apart. Today, we talk to someone who worked their way up to running the top home magazine in the country, helming super successful Home of the Year programs and being part of the fabric of the Big Bauer Publishing Beast, who one COVID lockdown day not long ago found himself without an employer job or magazine. And then, in a time of supreme uncertainty, and while magazines were pretty much banned, decided to start a title of his own with a real magazine. Simon Farrell-Green will be familiar to many, from food reviews and feature writing through Metro, BFM, Eat Here Now, Kia and as editor of Home. After COVID hit, he, with the backing of a boosted campaign, launched a new title, Here, a colourful, fun celebration of the magazine format and a time capsule of design in these times. Its second issue is out, and to talk starting old media out of the ashes of an industry, the journey, and not letting COVID and unemployment and no income get you down, Simon Farrell-Green joins us now. Kia ora, thank you for being here. Kia ora, a pleasure to be here, thank you. Hey, so... Tell me, tell me about your beginnings in writing as you um, got into writing kind of almost in a family business kind of way, eh? And then yeah. went off to, um, yeah, to, to the is, UK with it. it. Is the, it is the family biz in a way. I'm actually a, a third generation journalist. So um, my mum was a magazine editor uh, while I was growing up. And my great aunt was one of the first female reporters on the New Zealand Herald back during World War Two. Wow. My great aunt, I should say. So, yeah, it is. I did resist it for a while, um, and then I sort of got to the end of a BA at university and, and figured I needed a trade. Um, and so I went to journalism school and really didn't want to do news. Loved magazines, loved writing and feature writing and telling stories. So I set off um, pretty determinedly that I wanted to work for Metro, that was sort of the point of going to journalism school and 
was lucky enough to get a job um, at Metro straight out of university, which was incredible. Uh, and then did five years there as and ended up as a as a senior writer and the food editor, and then sort of took off to to London and and that was sort of um, and worked for Esquire magazine over there in in London, which was um, incredible. Yeah, how how does that happen? Because yeah, working up to being you know senior writer at, at Metro and the food thing, I think we'll come back and talk about mm. kind of the vitality of that food review uh, and and food editor position um, that that Metro has held over the years. But yeah, how how do you go about as like a a five year into your career writer going to London, the home of like the the great magazines, and getting a getting a job at one of the great titles? Um, I was really lucky. Uh, there's, I, I got to London, and um, and you know, New Zealand journalists will will all have this sort of story of floundering around. Um, your experience doesn't translate in any way because we're all generalists and they're all specialists. So they go, well, you know, what's your niche? And you say, oh, well, I've written about politics, and I've written about local government, and I've written about food, and I've written about you know, ex murderers, and and they go. Mm. So I ended up actually as a copy editor, which was um, something that I had not done professionally uh, here, but I had done a lot of editing. And there's this sort of network of Kiwi journalists in London who look after each other and get each other gigs. So somehow I lucked into some email round thing that took me and I ended up subbing sort of on a freelance basis um, at Esquire. And then a job came up there and I'd I'd been there enough that um, they liked me and I liked them. So I got the gig. So... That was that was really cool, and it was nice not to be writing. It was nice to be editing and sort of rounding out, um, I guess, the sort of production side of the magazine. So it felt like a nice step. And does it make you a better writer when you kind of can a bit more dispassionately look at look at copy and go, yeah. "Well, that's not doing the job because you didn't write it." And so, <laughs> yeah. It really and then when does. you come to write it again, does it help you? Yeah, it does, and it, it really, you know, it really makes you, I think, um, quite. Yeah, you you get quite ruthless with yourself, and I think you also um, learn how frustrating it is to read a piece that hasn't actually been fully finished off. So I think one of the things that I sort of learned from there was never ever send in a piece that has anything wrong with it, because once editors start to pick away at it, they end up rewriting it because you can't stop yourself, and the piece turns into something else. So if you want your voice to sort of carry through to print, you really have to deliver something pretty. Pretty tidy and clean. Yeah, bake the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, and then like that, I that that thing of like being a journalist in some ways or a writer in some ways is a transferable skill. But yeah, like like you said, like we're generalists in New Zealand, mm. but also context and network are really important. You know, things to have as a as a writer, and then you turn up to a new market, and you're yeah. like, well, I don't know anyone. I don't yeah. really know things. Yeah, no, you don't. You don't. And and you you know they they don't take you seriously because you don't talk right and all that sort of yeah. stuff. So it really was the, the turning into a copy editor was was great. But like I say, the the really nice thing from a career point of view, I think, was learning about production in a really detailed way. And their production sort of system was extraordinary you know they had we had three copy editors and two feature editors and a deputy editor and an editor you know every page went through sort of nine pairs of hands before it got printed you know it just sort of went round and round in circles until it was sort of almost over polished I think a lot of the time yeah and yeah and and having that kind of level of professionalism I remember um I worked uh, on a title for Paul Little and his level of uh, professionalism and and a, and care for the craft and yeah. approach to it totally changed my approach to to the to the whole thing. And yeah, what what's it like being at um, 
one of those kind of you know, you know august titles you have to re- you have to you have to bring your a game you have to be really sharp um and you know the sense of victory when you got a headline through or a or a stand first or an introduction or a caption through unchanged you know it happens sort of once an issue so this thing would you know you'd, you'd you'd nail it and then that 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 sort of um idea would carry through to print and that was so that was really um exciting um and I learned a lot from it, and I think it, I think it gave me a huge amount in terms of the, the sort of the later career around uh, not just being able to turn out you know a halfway decent feature story, but actually being able to frame it up and and size it up and 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 kind of create that journey for the reader right from the headline, which was which was not a skill I'd, I'd had quite as much before before that experience. And then back in New Zealand, uh, came back, and mm. I don't want to make you sound like um, a. a uh, a very old, old person. But you started quite an early food blog online, didn't I you? I did start quite an early food blog. Yeah. 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 It was 2010, so it's 10 years ago, um, which seems bizarre. And I was back in Auckland and freelancing and was really confused as to why um, – two very august titles known for their food reviewing weren't doing much in the digital space. Um, or Cuisine was, but but particularly Metro at that point had no digital presence. And I couldn't understand why you wouldn't just take the top 50 restaurant reviews and stick them on a blog and put a sponsor next to it and and kind of have, you know, a, a thing for a year and then you'd almost sort of change it once a year. It just And be an always accessible resource yeah. for fans of the yeah, writing and stuff. Exactly. As well, and right? and you know, you had that was iPhone, I think the iPhone four was released that year and so suddenly everyone was on their phones all the time and you were suddenly looking for restaurants um on 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 the internet. Whereas I think, you know, until that point it wasn't quite as it was it hadn't become habit by that point. Um, certainly not for, 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 for most people. And so we kind of, me and Natalie Smith, looked at it and thought, you know, let's let's start this thing um, and let's just go for it. And then we um, re-recruited my dear friend David Strait, um, who's a wonderful photographer, to shoot um, the the whole thing. And we kind of took this view that the, the blog itself could be quite sort of clunky and basic. It was sort of almost sort of deliberately under under-designed. It was just a, a template that we sort of farted around with, but was sort of deliberately sort of half-assed. And then we'd have these incredible, beautiful images of restaurants um, in there. And we kind of played with this idea of high-low, which was we would review Barilla, you know, a noodle bar with the same number of words and the same number of images as the French cafe, you know, as a fine diner. So, And we kind of weren't madly interested in the kind of mediocre middle ground of stuff, um, and the other thing that we we sort of really wanted to move away from a sort of a reviewing had become quite bitchy and quite um, self, you know, that was sort of the AA Gill was at his peak, and so sort of long form reviewing had become about you know oh I went out with my wife and she had you know a haircut and and then I said to the waiter what's your best champagne and blah 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 and and then you kind of would pillory the restaurant for dropping a fork. And it was just, it, it's, it felt bitchy and irrelevant and not sort of right for the times. It was just after the GFC, people weren't, people's, it was a bit like now, their, their emotions were quite raw, quite, quite, we were all quite sort of, sort of feeling quite sort of itchy and, and odd. And so we kind of went, we're just going to talk about places we like. And we'll put, you know, mild criticisms and nudges inside that. But basically, you know, it's called Eat Here Now. You should eat here now. We think it's good enough to feature. We think it's good enough to photograph. You should eat there. 
And there, there was a real kind of focus on um, going, uh, I guess, experiential dining uh, in that you'd say, hey, we found this amazing, um, like, like Xi'an food bar or something. And, you know, you have to try number 37. It's the one with the hand-pulled noodles and the unctuous pork on it. And it's, you know, it's amazing. And it's going to be the best $9.50 you're going to spend all year. And you'd, you'd read that and you'd go like, well, I'm going to go to the bottom of Anzac Ave and I'm going to go into this place and I'm going to push the little button on that thing and I'm going to order that because that sounds great. And you'd go in and you'd see streams of people that you kind of, you know, <laughs> look, looked like us inside there and you'd be like, oh, they've read that too. <laughs> That's really nice. I didn't actually, I didn't, I, I guess you don't really, when you're working away at it, you don't have any idea of, of that. Um, oh, in, in fact, I once... Yeah, that's I, really cool. Mr. Zhao's dumplings that you, um, you, you did a write-up on, I once rang up and I, you know, for a phone order and said Simon, and then I turned up and they said, "Are you the Simon who wrote the story?" So many people have come in. <laughs> that was a cool one, actually. Mm. That that was fun. I mean, that the 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 really nice thing about that whole experience was feeling like you could help, um, and and feeling like you you're not. We weren't mates with the industry, but we were. We felt like we were part of a conversation and that we were connecting diners with experiences and 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 as a result I think we did help a few a few businesses over the period that we did it and that felt that felt really really nice it was a really nice feeling I think also having probably come from a, a sort of classic current affairs background where a lot of the time you're kind of hunting to kill mm-hmm. that that felt like a nice much more sort of me place to be yeah 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 and, and so so the ET now which um you, you know uh, you did things like um events and stuff to kind of fund it but well it wasn't so much kind of like a a business as a project hey that was something was that intentional (laughs) yeah no that was unintentional that um i think that was the thing i struggled most with was um having come from a pure content editorial journalistic background i knew what i wanted i knew what i wanted the mega the 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 the, the copy to do I knew what the images needed to look like I, I knew all of that what I didn't know was how to commercialize it and I didn't start with the revenue and I think that's probably the, the biggest lesson I took out of it and so we ended up in this place where we were always struggling to um, to, to, to put money against it I mean we had an, a long ongoing relationship with Crane Brothers with Murray Crane who supported the blog for about three or four years and we did some some really cool events and guides to eating for his clients and bits and pieces and we did a bit of native content and we did um, we did we did events we did supper clubs and they were good so it sort of it paid for itself it never um, actually cost me personally any money after a period which was nice but it never it never took off and because I was freelancing around the edges of it I never had the the sort of ability to to sort of almost you know fire all the other jobs and just focus on that and go hard at that and grow it, and I didn't have the background in a sort of commercial sense really to go out and sell some ads. I didn't really know how to do that, so that's probably the biggest change between it here now and, and here. Um, yeah, and then between between those two, mm. so back into the Bower Beast, which has been mm. a really big thing in your kind of um, career. Bauer and, and yeah, yeah t- tell me about getting back in there and then yeah I, I think I think about kind of you know the the influence and impact that Metro's top restaurants mm. and the best cheap eats and all the like and the best cafes um, had on the local hospitality scene over the, yeah. the last few years while you were yeah. in there yeah yeah I mean well so I mean the Bauer thing 
I sort of ran, so I ran out of steam with freelancing and I ran out of steam with it here now. So I went and had a chat with Brendan Hill, who's now the CEO of Bauer or whatever it's going to end up being called, Australia and New Zealand. And I said, look, you know, I'm, I need to take another step. And then there was sort of one job came up that I really wanted and I didn't get that. And then he came along and said, or rang me up and said, you know, um, would you like home? And it was sort of like, uh, yeah. Because I guess as well as the food thing, I'd, I'd always had the, the architecture thing. I'd always written for home. It'd always been the other the other passion, if you like. Um, and then getting back in there was was amazing because I'd been gone from Bauer, well, as it was, it was ACP before that, for oh, the better part of 10 years. And so to come in at... It was a, it's a, it was a slick a slick business. It was it had um, you know really got some incredible systems around it. Um, it you know it brought in a lot of revenue. Um, yeah, it's a, a huge heaving beast of a thing with these kind of massive campaigns and you know you sit in meetings for a restaurant of the year, which I was a, sort of a part of as well. And you know, there's 25 people around a boardroom table, and everyone's got a different job. You know, the the, the kind of um, size and scale of of that business was was extraordinary. Yeah, and these things like you know, restaurant of the year with twenty five people all yeah. going out and meeting and stuff like that's hunt like the, the seriousness with which these things are taken probably isn't appreciated outside of the industry. Hundreds and hundreds of hours of people's yeah. pay goes yeah. into um, putting these things together. It's not kind of what people may look from the outside and go, "Well, there's some people kind of getting yeah. some, comping some dinners, expensing some dinners." There was, I mean, there was, you know, there's, I mean, there's always tensions and 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 difficulties and inside big, big media companies. Particularly when you've got you know foreign owners who just look at the bottom line, but the I think the integrity of the titles at Bauer, whatever whether you were talking about home or whether you were talking about Women's Day, the the there was no um, there was no pulling back on that. They definitely you know backed it and did the right thing and you know re- and sort of you know paid for things to happen, which was which was great. And then I think as a result, we we sold you know good good amounts of advertising, good amounts of kind of sponsorship off the back of that because you had a real live sort of um, authentic thing to sell, yeah. both both to the, the readers who then bought the magazine and, and to advertisers who wanted to be associated with it. Yeah, but against quite a hard kind of um, media climate with magazine circulation and mm. subscriptions dropping so much over that period that, uh, that at some points, you know, like Metro putting out, you know, great, Great content, great editors, great writers, and with you know, um, and then you you have the, the the concurrent rise of the Instagram influencers, and they've got fifty thousand followers, and the magazine has eight thousand titles, uh, copies float, floating around. You go, oh boy, there's there's a lot lot kind of writing on this. Yeah, I mean, I think what we found was that yeah, you had the rise of all that stuff, and you have all the digital stuff, but what. And I think we saw this when you know Bauer folded and all the magazines went away. The people, yeah, there's the, the numbers you know in a digital space or in a social space dwarf anything you might do in terms of sales. But um, the engagement's different. So the you know an Instagram photo floats past you, and I think the average I looked at it the other day. The average sort of dwell time, if you like, is like 1.5 seconds per image or something. You know, that's that's the speed with which. Whereas we were getting research back. I mean, um, you know, Metro and, and, and those magazines, you know, average reading time of an hour, um, which you know, which implies that some people would sit down all afternoon with it and, and read every word. And, and we know that they, they, they did that. So I guess that was that was the sort of counterpoint to to that. Um, I think... I think as as the we, yeah I mean the the other side to it I guess was that um, the the sort of Bauer I think digital strategy d- 
long term didn't didn't end up working particularly well the sort of hubbed titles and things um, I think I think that that really hobbled some particularly the sort of premium niche they, titles they, they kind of started and then shelved mm. three or four things that if they'd kind of started a few years earlier or just stuck with or hadn't killed all could have worked it's quite a funny kind of like graveyard of of online approaches yeah it is a little bit um i mean i think you know that that that, that that's sort of what what happens in those companies sometimes um the the reality was that um you know it's only really in the last year or two that i think anyone's worked out how to make digital pay mm. and so that you know when you've got as, as many titles as Bauer has and you can't get the thing to pay then it starts to cost you a lot of money mm. and that that is that is you know I mean by the end of Bauer they had um, 40 people in the digital team and I think 38 on the editorial team um, and the fact that those two things were even separate ideas was sort of slightly odd um, but you know that the, the, that was that's the scale of what that that and that sort of strategy was was um, was costing, yeah. yeah. And, and on the plus side of that scale and stuff, so home where you mm. were the, the editor, which is you know, um, yeah, su- such a kind of been such a great title over the years, and with those things like home of the year and mm. the really big events around it, it's not a um, a typical kind of um, editorial. Uh, partner divide because so much of the program of what the magazine presents is actually in partnership with sponsors and stuff. What goes into doing those things like the home of the year? <laughs> Lots. Uh, yeah, they're, they're huge campaigns. Um, I think you, you, we always came at it from, I think, the, the point of the audience was where we started. Was What do they want? What do they want to see? And then we'd build a a campaign um, out of the back of that rather than starting with a partner, rather than starting with a sponsor. I always said we have to start with the audience. We have to start with what we know they want and then they will follow and we will commercialise that afterwards. And so that was always the starting point. Um, we were lucky with you know some of those big campaigns. We, um, we had some really incredible sort of partner support um, and they got, they got what we were doing. And so really it was about sort of start with the audience, develop up an idea, and then go to those partners and say, well, okay, does this appeal and what are your priorities and how do we how do we kind of leverage this for you? And so that would change, you know, year to year. And um, I think, we, you know, we're seeing in magazines a massive, enormous shift away from, if you like, association and sponsorship, which was a really huge thing in the kind of 90s and 2000s, was, you know, big brand, throw, you know, massive amount of money at it just for the sake of, you know, being associated with this kind of marquee platform to um, a place where people want, um, they want to be able to to sort of take something out of the end of it. So um, we're doing, just on here, we're doing just content campaigns all the time. Um, We're doing, you know, and it's all stuff that that we then pass on to, to those brands and they then use them themselves on their own platforms across all you know all that sort of thing so that was that was the biggest shift that we saw um in the last couple of years and and kind of like not just like a magazine um promotion things like home of the year are like vital to the industry yeah that's the that's the really interesting thing i think about food and architecture which are the two sort of strands of the last 10 years to my to my career is you are part of an ecosystem that um 
we need, you know, in the case of, you know, the food stuff, you need the restaurants to keep going and you need them to keep opening so that you can write about them. And the brands want to sort of sit in between the reader the, and, and you and, and the, the sort of home of the year type um, stuff is, is similar. Um, and I think that's, that's sort of the, the reason that, that I sort of, you know, sat in the middle of winter and went, I've got to do something because I could sort of see that the, the ecosystem was in, was in danger of, of, you know, the, the architect, I mean, it was literally, you know, the architects were, had stopped commissioning um, photo shoots at the houses because there was nowhere for those photos to go. If you love the spin-off, the best way to show it is to become part of the spin-off members. This is the fund that helps us keep free and accessible to all without a paywall. It also funds some of our most important and acclaimed journalism. Check it out through the spin-off. Kia ora, I'm Sophie. And I'm Simon. And I'm Alice, and together we host the spin-off's food podcast, Dietary Requirements. Join us each month as we explore a vast culinary landscape. From the gourmet Ooh la la. to your more hearty tucker. Kiwi onion dip, anyone? Everything's on the table in Dietary Requirements. Subscribe wherever you listen to all your other favourite podcasts. Yeah. yeah, t- yeah. T- tell me about this. So you've got to the top of your game <laughs> and you're running kind of the top title I hope I haven't peaked things, Simon no 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 that was that was like that was like base, that was base camp right but take, take you're at the top of the game and um, running the biggest uh, the, the biggest title the biggest events and then uh, things are going pretty well and then suddenly this big publisher that through a couple of different guises has been absolutely integral to the industry for 50 odd years or whatever. Yeah, and part of and, my life for 20 as well. That was the that was the extraordinary thing. And then suddenly one day, not only is there no longer a job, your magazine's gone, the mm. whole company's gone, we're in a lockdown, mm. magazines are banned by the government. How was that for you? Pretty surreal, yeah. Um, I got, we got, I mean, the story's well known, and Henry Oliver from Metro's told it as well. I mean, we got a we got a text. There was a company-wide text message system that they'd been trialling the week before because we'd all gone home a week. Globally, Bauer had gone home a week or 10 days ahead of our lockdown um, because Germany and other countries were so kind of so much worse off than we were, so they just said, you know, globally, everyone go home now. So we were home, um, and... Um, my wife and I were renting a very tiny uh, 75 square meter cottage in Auckland in between houses. We'd actually just bought a new house and taken on an enormous mortgage. Um, and um, we had, we've got two young kids, so um, we're sort of trying to manage that. And so I get this text message at seven saying, you know, please report to a Zoom at nine. And I'm thinking, oh, we're going to go down to 70% salary or they're closing four magazines or, you know, we're, there's going to be some redundancies or, you know, this is kind of going to be start to be this kind of death by a thousand cuts. And it was just literally Brendan um, Hill, the CEO, on Zoom. I couldn't actually see him because the, the Zoom got overloaded. So all I had was this kind of audio link with a black screen. Um, and it was a 10-minute, you know, these are the challenges and we are closing effective immediately. Um everyone gets paid, please talk to your manager if you've got any questions. And that was, you know, gone. And I just sort of came out into the living room and said to Hannah, and she was on a, she was on a Zoom call of her own because um, she works for a, a design agency and spends most of her life on Zooms. And I, I, I said, it's gone. It's, 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 it's fucking gone. Um, and she went, what do you mean it's gone? And she sort of hung up and I said, it's, it's done. We're over. We're, it's, and she's, what, home? And I said, no, Bauer, it's gone. And it was just, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was terrifying. Um, but 
pretty quickly, you know, that day, I mean, I actually spent the afternoon calling architects. Um, it was just really obvious that that while Bauer had its challenges and made had made its decision and yes, magazines were banned and, and advertising revenues are probably 50% of, of what they were a year ago, it was just really obvious that there was still a business there. It, that I just I just could not get that out of my head. I just I just kept saying this is I knew the forecasts, I knew what we were what we were looking at and you know, we'd spent a couple of weeks before the closure kind of working out how we would get through the winter with with, you know, some maybe some clever ways of, of bringing out a cheaper magazine that, you know, m- some kind of retrospective or, you know, or maybe we would, you know, there was a whole pile of different ideas sort of floating around as to how we would get through with, you know, massively reduced budgets without, you know, losing any any people. And um, so I kind of just knew, I was just like, there, there is a business here. This is yeah. not gone. It, it seemed like, you know, for someone who's, probably unusually interested in, in media and, and magazines. It seemed to me to be absolutely mad. Like after after hundreds and hundreds of years of people enjoying to sit down with um, a, a paper record of what's going on and, and, uh, and, you know, it's not like that's just going to stop. And it was obvious that, you know, some would be bought out or some would be this. But to absolutely pull the plug and just decide to walk away from all of it, um, it, it felt like an act of cultural vandalism. That's, that's, yeah, that's, un- they're very pragmatic, accountancy driven people, the Bowers. That's the secret of their success, is they are very pragmatic. They are very rational. And I have no doubt that they would have looked at the numbers and looked at the worst case scenario and plotted that out and plotted out, you know, two or three different scenarios and gone, you know, well, that one... That one is 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 the best one, and I mean, you, when you've got three hundred and fifty, four hundred people, you've got a huge building in the middle of City Works Depot in downtown Auckland. You're paying enormous amounts of of salary and rent. Mm. That adds up real fast. And if you can't print anything and you can't sell any ads and you've got no revenue, mm. then the, the the I mean, they would they would have been looking at a, a terrifying balance sheet. I have no doubt that that that, yeah. that that just seemed like, and you know the extraordinary thing is they paid everyone out. Every contributor got paid. Every every person got their um, their you know their notice period, their redundancy, their holiday. They did. They could have put it into liquidation, walked away, and said, "Sorry, we're you know we're done. We're cooked." But they paid everyone out. Yeah, that, that's that's good to hear because that has been a little bit lost in the I, kind of. The shock, uh, I think, around people, it. People got very angry about Bauer and, and, and really hated on them and, 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 you know, people got very upset. But the reality is is that while they made a business decision to close their business, mm. they then did it the right way because, and everyone got paid. Because liquidating is easier if you need to break contracts. Yes. So if you have a big lease on a big building, it's actually harder to negotiate your way out uh, than it is to liquidate if you actually don't care about retaining any value. Like, exactly, and and the thing is, they had no they had no vested interest. I mean, they, you know, they were exiting the market, yeah. so it's not like they needed to look after their relationships with people. Yeah, and you can you can understand too if you're a big German company and you're like, well, we can put all this energy into saving quite a large number of titles because New Zealand, for yes. a market of five million people, yeah. has an extraordinarily rich and varied media it landscape. Does. For, yeah, for what you know, imagine like. Sydney, with our entire media <laughs> landscape, uh, they look at it and they're like, well, we yeah. can put all this energy in and best case scenario, we end up with some kind of like going concern businesses that can't really scale anywhere else. Or 
we can put all our energy into like saving our German titles or Australian titles. Yeah, you're exactly right. You're exact. That's a hundred percent it. They would have the energy taken to to save this market just would not have would not have worked. Mm. So yeah. So when it stopped being a cash cow, out of here. Yeah. Um, and then, so in this environment, you know that magazines have a future. You know that humans aren't suddenly going to completely change. Mm. Uh, but actually running a print title today is is a challenging um, business decision. But what were your thought processes in kind of running back into the burning building <laughs> of media <laughs> and deciding to um, to launch not just a media property online, but a physical magazine and like a kind of... L- l- beautifully produced, luxurious magazine mm. uh, at, at that. I uh, there was a lot in there. Um, I didn't feel done. That was um, that was uh, th- so. There was an emotion there of just this is unfinished business. And um, then there was a sort of a rational look at it, which was the market's pretty clear. This feels like a once in a lifetime opportunity to mm. jump in and get some clear air. Because um, the three other, like... Well, the like entire architectural, architectural publishing industry collapsed. So yeah. the only magazine left in the sort of architecture and in... Well, there were two magazines left in the architecture and interiors kind of space. One was um, Homestyle, mm-hmm. and the other was New Zealand House and Garden, and Architecture New Zealand was at that point looking very shaky as well. So well, there were three left out of eight or nine. Mm. So it was sort of... It felt like a chance to, to jump in um, to have um, some pretty clear air in terms of what we wanted to do and 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 what we'd how we'd position things and 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 not be sort of boxed in by existing established titles um, and kind of claim a bit of space and claim some real estate um, the the distributors were you know, delighted and excited the, the supermarkets were as well and you know the it's, I always joke that you know magazines are like really fancy toothpaste. They actually are a you know they're an FMCG. They they go through bookshops and 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 supermarkets, and so they you know had real estate that was dedicated to this product, if you like, and they had very little to put on it. So they were you know excited and delighted to to hear we got ranged in supermarkets inside three weeks. So it it just felt like there was an opportunity there, and I I kind of knew I knew the numbers. I knew what the what what the business would look like and and when you looked at that and went okay work back from that and we don't have any rent we reduce you know we're not running four layers of management we don't have a you know four people on a subscriptions team all that you know all those sorts of when you strip a all div- that stuff away a dividend to send back to germany well there's that as well yeah so i knew pretty quickly that that was um that was a viable business that that if we kept the overheads low for the first couple of years and and sort of held our nerve that there was definitely a business in there and then and then from there it was well if we're going to make a thing we're going to make a printed thing initially because that's the market opportunity how do we do that as the best possible way we can and that was that was seeing out some frustrations from you know when you work in corporate media and somebody works out that if we if we save X percent on paper across 15 magazines, we save you know X hundreds of thousands of whatever dollars a year. And so I had been fighting you know, an occasional sort of losing battle at Bauer to um, 
increase paper stock or you know increase the kind of production values of what we were doing and um, those sorts of things and so that was that was the other opportunity for us so we we set up to make this quite beautiful amazing luxurious thing to really reward the reader and we can make we could we knew we could make that decision because it was you know budgeted for but you know we spend we you know we spend sort of four or five thousand more um, and an issue on printing it than we have to in, in blunt terms to to make a to make a beautiful to artifact. make a really nice artifact and, and yeah. I think you know like the um, the role of magazines uh, as as things to actually kind of enjoy and matter becomes more important in a media environment where everything is so always on and demanding and disposable and the news just keeps happening and it mm. never stops that that ability to actually sit down with something and you see it with things like. The New Yorker, where you know, by investing in quality and and news that kind of um, news and stories that aren't just of that second, um, yeah, yeah, and and that's been the back of their growth. But it is about really investing in quality if you're going to make that work, though, isn't it? It is. It's about, but it's about honouring the reader and honouring honouring the audience. And so we were, we you know, we were determined that we would not run any licensed, repurposed kind of content and. The, the the kind of world is awash with content packages. They're, they're cheap. They're really cheap. You know, you can make a housing magazine like this look incredible and you you can almost pick, you know, a, an edited package of stories with a head and a cell and a, you know, well-edited, well-written story on, you know, a family in South Africa's beach house outside Cape Town and it looks incredible and, and you would be amazed some of the titles that you think of as iconic and mm. um, kind of world-leading brands, and then because you're on the email list, you're like, oh, oh, pick up, you know, dwell the other day, and I'm like, ah, oh, said no to that one, you know, it's sort <laughs> yeah. of. So it's um, you can make those really cheap, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to make it um, 100% about New Zealand from here, um, original content, stuff that no one had really ever seen before. Mm. Um, that was just so important to me. And, and houses with a point of view. Uh, and you, you know, an, an editorial kind of like the second issue, everything will be all right. Yeah. Everything's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, and that's cool to be able to go the editorial view around houses, um, which are built to last and are timeless, um, but can can be relevant to the moment. Yeah. which I think is is a greater opportunity than I feel really um, like like Metro, for example. Very challenging when you're associated only with Auckland, and very challenging. And I'm sure you know the team that have taken over are very, very sharp. They'll, they'll they'll work their way through all of it, and they've been making amazing, um, amazing magazines mm. over the years. But a lot of what made Metro vital, which were restaurant reviews, interviews with kind of personalities, um, you, you know, book reviews, film reviews, all of that, it's now essentially kind of free in Viva or Sunday Magazine or Canvas, and they are really great titles as well. So mm. a lot of what made Metro really vital has been replicated by the newspapers and given away as supplements, yeah. and, and that's that's hard. Yeah, I mean, you can argue the same thing with houses. I mean, uh, there are any number of Instagram accounts that literally just go around the internet hoovering up Im- bands of free images off architects' websites and putting beautiful galleries with a short caption on. Mm. So, and... You know, the, the I mean, it's it's very easy to find this content free. Mm. I think what we do is put it together in such a way that we call your attention to it and we say, this is the stuff you need to know about and this is why. 
And I think that's the that's the key. And we wanted to approach things in a, a slightly more, I think, emotional way was was really key to me as well. I, I sort of felt like the, the category was quite sort of stale um, and, and could, was getting quite sort of hidebound and sort of category-driven and, and, you know, typologies, so, you know, small houses or you know, houses at the beach or just quite prosaic ways of, of, of collecting and curating. And I sort of felt like if you look at, I looked a lot at art galleries and the way that they will put together an exhibition and a lot of it's sort of creating connections between things that don't seem to have a connection. And, and, and a lot of that's actually an intuitive sort of emotional um, approach. And so the first issue was called Come Home, you know, because it was COVID, we'd just come out of lockdown, we're all still spending heaps of time at home, and it was like, okay, we want these, we want these houses to have security. And, 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 and then so we've sort of, we've kept playing with that idea and, and with this idea of almost kind of, yeah, like gallery exhibitions rather than, rather than the small homes issue, which is what, you know, we used to do at, at home and which was, you know, um, I think, yeah, stopping, it was, it was not working anymore. And as part of that gallery kind of idea, kind of like a guest curator with the guest yeah. art director every um, issue, that's a that's a cool idea. Talk me through that. <laughs> My wife calls that me making everything more complicated than it needs to be. Um, that was we we've got this amazing design director called Sarah Gladwell, who's a very old friend of mine, who is actually lives in Sydney, but she's a, a New Zealander, and she's probably one of the country's best um, editorial designers. She's designed some incredible. Um, books and printed things and that sort of thing and I just was conscious that again that that idea of artifact that we needed to give people a reason to pick the thing up and we needed to create an experience that they could not get in any other way than buying it Mm. and so that sort of eventually turned into this idea of a a guest art director or a a guest creative um, who would come through and with the main home features, you would um, have so the so Sarah sort of designs the cover and the sort of front of the mag and the back, and she does all the production and she collaborates really closely with them. But they sort of have a creative direction through those sort of main houses each issue, and it's just a way of making it feel special and different. And it was also a way of connecting and engaging with the design community in New Zealand, which I don't think people understand how incredible it is. You know, as same as with you know we haven't amazing sort of media landscape we have an amazing design landscape in this country it's extraordinary that a, a, a country of five million people or that a city of 1.6 million people in Auckland would have this level of talent um, and this quality of design I mean you look at the, the best awards and it's just it's, it's, it's wild it's wild yeah um, and it's it's I think it speaks to you know um, also businesses sort of woken up to this and said well actually you know our, our products can look incredible. Mm-hmm for <laughs> much less than it would cost us to do this in New York. So why the hell not? So we kind of wanted to engage with that with that community as well because I thought I thought they were important. And you mentioned community there and part of like getting the the magazine off the ground was a boosted campaign mm. where the community really jumped out and said, "Yes, we value a good printed publication. Yes, we want these things to to exist. How did that come about? Did you get kind of nudged along to it? Oh uh, yeah. So um, we, well, I've got a very dear friend who is um, involved with the Arts Foundation. She is the, the 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 lead on the Arts Foundation, and they run the booster campaign. And Joe said to me, "Oh, you should do a booster campaign." I said, "I'm not doing a booster campaign." And she said, "No, no, you should. You know, everyone will support you. They'll back you." And I said, "No, that's for people wanting to put you know an art exhibition on in a student-run space in Wellington. You know, that's 
you know, that's for people that have, you know, no kind of other way of making something happen. I'm not going to distract everybody from that cool stuff. I'm not going to be the, the dude starting a business asking for money. And it just, and, so, and she said, no, you know, people um, are missing their culture. They're, they, they're, they're really, you know, they, they, they want to see these things come back or to see something come out of this. And they will support you and they want to support you. This is, you know, this is the other side to it was people, I think, have come out of COVID and out of lockdown with this incredible need to connect and support and be part of something. So we, we did it. Um, I was at that point oh, probably a month out from launching the, the first issue and we were you know, a little bit short on advertising, so I just, you know, had to work out how much to put on the thing, so I just sort of looked at the spreadsheet and went, oh, okay, well, if we can if we can get that from the booster campaign, then cool, you know, we're on budget kind of thing for the for the first issue. And um, it just went nuts. It went completely bonkers. Um, and we came away with close to $30,000, um, which um, was the most incredible kind of shot in the arm for... A, a startup title um, mm. was incredible, so it's it's meant we can do things um, that we couldn't have considered doing, um, and it's also meant that you know the business is a business. It is it is viable. It has working capital. Yeah, it and, can do stuff. And that is an amazing turnaround from because I imagine at that position you've been made redundant. You've got a big mortgage. You've got no income. You're starting a print title, which has a lot of associated costs. Like there is a lot of money that goes into printing and distributing a magazine, with no guarantee that it's going to be, you know, sold. Uh, and that, that's a big, a whole lot of risk. And so, and and advertising, I can't imagine how hard it would be to sell advertising at the mo at, at, at that moment. Um, so yeah, I, re- I really, it must, yeah, it must have been an amazing thing to happen. Yeah, it was that was it was. I mean, I think if you. It's funny, you you put it like that and you go, well, that was a stupid idea. <laughs> yeah. What what rational person would do that? But it didn't feel like that. It felt it felt very considered and it felt um, safe. It felt very very safe. It felt it felt like one hundred percent the right thing to do in that moment, um, and it and it felt like it was it, it just it just felt like it was gonna go, um, and that people wanted it. And how did it go on the shelves? Well, this is the thing about magazine distribution. It's the most sort of, you, you know, um, you have no data. So um, the short story is I actually don't know yet <laughs> for either of the two issues that we have printed. Uh, it seems to be going extraordinarily well. It seems to be selling very nicely. Um, we have been selling subscriptions hand over fist since we launched subs, you know, sort of the subscription platform a couple of months ago. Um, we are selling lots of copies um, and just, you know, anecdotally, it seems like in particular areas that you'd expect a magazine lights to sell, it, it, it is hard to find in those shops. And I know that those shops are on the distribution list. So, um, yeah, we'll we'll find out soon. But so it, sh- it should be on the shelves of your local countdown or New World. If it's or not, please say. ask. Yeah, yeah, Do you yeah. please ask them to get some more? Yeah. And so, you know, having been through this experience, what would be your advice for people who are kind of, I don't know, looking to jump into an abyss? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Start with the money. Start with the money. That's the thing that I learned um, was, you know, with the the blog and with with a whole pile of projects that I'd done before, I'd started with the idea 
And this, you've got to, well, no, you don't start with the money, do you? You start with the idea. But just know where the money's coming from. Know that things can get paid for right. because that gives you, I think that's the thing that, that my career, I've sort of been thinking a lot about of late is having started as a, a sort of broadly creative mm. person and have, have wound up in, in this much more sort of commercial space. Though the, 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 as a creative person, you you will do anything to make the thing that you want to do happen, and if that means going out and selling the ads yourself, then then you will. Mm. And so I think that's that's what I just say is, it's it's only an abyss if you don't know what's going on, if you're not sure of the numbers and sure of the landscape and sure of your ground, and you just have to find that stuff. There's a real tension around that idea of being tension. Such an advertising word. I'm sorry. There's a real kind of tension around that. Uh, that idea of as a creative person, you can't say something like start with the money. But I'd say the counter to that is that it's very, very hard to do all the things that you as a creative person want to do in your endeavour, like great uh, collaborations with artists or wonderful events or or commission that illustrator to do that beautiful piece or or, or realise any of the, the dreams that you have unless you've got your bills paid and a little bit of profit. Because if you don't have your bills paid and a little bit of profit, your life is hell and you will go bankrupt and you won't be able to pay people and it will be a nightmare. But still, like when you're in a creative endeavour, it's almost like it's a dirty word to say, hey, make sure you know how this is all going to be paid for. Yeah, and it's 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 a tricky one, I think. And it took me a long time to, to learn that. Um, but... I, I sort of cottoned onto it, like I say, at the sort of the end of that eat here now phase and going, this could be, I, I have regrets around that that website and that blog and we, we closed it down and turned it off and I that could have, we could have turned that into something much, much bigger than it was, it could have grown, but I had no, I didn't have the language, I didn't have the understanding, I had no kind of concept of how you would do that um, and so that's, that's something that I've only learned in the last sort of three or four years, and and I'm still learning. I'm, I'm only at the start of that that process, but but that's that's what I kind of think now. And um, is is you know you you have to do that because otherwise otherwise to get the money and you have to do other stuff and you have to be distracted by all the other stuff that pays the bills. And that that was sort of the story of my thirties was was freelancing all over the show, doing all sorts of fun and cool stuff. And making a pretty good living out of it with this sort of hobby on the side, and that's not sustainable. At some point, um, the you know the, the shop window starts costing you too much, and you you turn it off. Or, or, or the absolute classic creative error, which is not putting a line in for your own salary, or yeah. to actually you do everything on a break-even model. Yeah, and you're like, well, if we just do this, then it'll pay for itself. And you're like. If it sounds, you know, it sounds like the most simple thing in the world. You know, there'd be business people listen to this going, "Oh God!" But you know, if you don't have a profit line in there, if any single thing doesn't go your way for any reason, you're suddenly in a deficit that you can't get back from, mm. and then a deficit becomes a vicious cycle, and you're you're fucked. Mm. <laughs> so you know, if you don't have profit baked in, you 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 you're actually saying nothing's ever going to not go right, which. Um, it's a little naive, <laughs> <laughs> says the guy with an exploded business. <laughs> no. uh, no. No, great. Um, and as a final thought, mm. <laughs> um, what will success be for you? Like, what, where would you like to see here go? And, and yeah, mm, what's, what's, think what's a lot in the pipeline that. for it? Um, I, I want it to be 
uh, a family business for us. Um, I want it to be something that grows and is sustainable um, and and has certainty around it. I think the days of media businesses being massive cash cows that enable you to grow to um, you know own ten magazines off the back of one successful one that that's gone. Um, but the the you know things like the spin-off have have shown that you know finding a a, a, a connected you know enthusiastic audience and um, and being and honoring that and being true to that mm. I think um, is is a great business model um, so you know you'll see and you you'll see that with all the magazines that that are that are coming back the north and south and the metros and those sorts of things there they are they are fine businesses but they're not you know going to make hundreds of millions of dollars of profit but um so that's that's success for us right now is 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 get the thing sustainable and ongoing and certain as it can be really i'm looking forward to to seeing where you take it thank you so much for thank you for sharing the story today that's simon farrell green uh publisher editor of here thank you Thank you very much to Tina Tiller for producing and thank you very much for having us along in your ears and listening. Cheers. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, Jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.